welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if it is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 139 is writer and director Daniel Goldhaber. He has a brand new film out right now called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It opened wide this last Friday. I caught it a couple weeks ago when it had a limited release, and I was so moved and excited by this film, I just had to talk to him. He was kind enough to agree. He came on. We talked all about his work leading up to this. He released a film a few years ago. It's on Netflix through Blumhouse called Cam, which is absolutely worth checking out. It's a very awesome Hitchcockian sort of thriller horror movie. Um, But God, this new one, let me tell you, a lot of movies about this sort of subject matter, the uh, environmentalists trying to do something extreme. I don't want to give too much away. Often when these films are made, they sort of come off as cautionary tales. And I was so moved by this movie because it has teeth. That's what I want to say. So go out and see this film as soon as you can. It is absolutely incredible. And as word of mouth continues to spread, I think this is going to be one of the most talked about movies of the year. Um, Also awesome to note that uh, Daniel was nice enough to give me some of his time as he just started filming a I don't know if we want to call it a remake or a reboot, but he is directing the Faces of Death movie. So I look forward to seeing what that's going to be. Holy shit. Um, I want to let you know if you're new here, there's a bonus episode available right now where Daniel answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month and you can get access to that plus a whole back catalog of bonus content. One more time, that is patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And also, if you're new here and you enjoy this, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. I think that's it. Um, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Daniel Goldhaber. Daniel, it's so nice to meet you. This uh, This is awesome. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time today. Yeah, great to great to be here. Um, it's, I, uh, so just some background, you know, like I caught your newest movie, how to blow up a pipeline the other night. And there's just those random occasions where maybe you see something, you read something, you hear something and you walk out and you're just like, I need to see if I could have a conversation with that person. Cause you just enjoyed it so much. So, mm-hmm. uh, I actually just caught it again last night as a quick refresher before this. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah, so I mean, just right off the bat, congratulations on this thing coming out. Has this been? Has this movie been done for a long time, and now you're sort of finally getting to sort of enjoy people seeing it? Yes and no. I mean, <clears throat> we finished the film last September, but I've been traveling with the movie kind of since we finished it, um, more or less. So um, not just in the U.S., but internationally, which was and, and has been extremely gratifying. Um, but you know, this is my first proper theatrical release of a movie, so that definitely feels pretty good. And uh, you know, it's been it's been really interesting to see you know how audiences are responding, how the press is responding, and I think we always knew that there would be a bit of a a bit of a a bit of a catch up of people, you know, learning about the film and going to see the film. But um, you know, it's just been cool seeing that unfold. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, it led me to because I I actually didn't catch uh, Cam a 
upon that's release. So like as soon as I finished that, I was like, well, now I got to go watch that. And thankfully it's right there on Netflix. So uh, and, you know, even just a being those movies, they feel like, you know, worlds, worlds apart. And I'm assuming um, they're both shot in a short amount of time. But uh, I imagine just from your two experiences, uh, learning a lot from doing cam and now doing this probably set you up for uh, knowing what a fast shoot time is. is. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have not yet had the luxury of like a real, a real production process on a movie. You know, I'm actually shooting my first studio film right now, um, and even that is like, uh, you know, that's a it's a legendary movie, and uh, we're on a 24 day schedule, baby. Uh, so <laughs> you know, I'm inching up in my in my pr- my my principal photography. You know. Uh, cause pipeline was 22 of principle, but it was 28 days in total, uh, with wow. our, with our splinter shoots and our pickups. And, uh, you know, this next one is, is 24 cam was 20, uh, with one day of pickups So you know, um, but I, I, I think that like, I do kind of thrive on that fast, that adrenaline of shooting, um, you know, I do enjoy those like really intense days where you're you're just kind of you can't totally think you just have to go. I think they can yeah. be really gratifying. And, you know, with Pipeline in particular, it's not only a movie that we shot quickly. It's a movie that we just made quickly from beginning to end. You know, it was 19 months from idea to premiere. And I think that there was kind of a punk energy that we were able to that, that we made it with, but that also I think ended up on the screen. Yeah. You, and you can absolutely feel that for sure. So uh, you're from Boulder originally. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Well, wow. Have you spent any time on the West coast? Like, did you live out here ever? I'm in LA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I've been, I've been kind of between New York and LA since I graduated college in 2013. Um, and I spent most of the pandemic and lockdown in Los Angeles. Um, so I was there. Uh, I was going to try to move to LA in like March 2020, and then you know got got kind of stuck there, um, yeah. and and was in LA, you know, kind of up until we started shooting Pipeline predominantly. So you know, from March 2020 to you know October of 2021, I was in LA, uh, and and I've just kind of otherwise been in and out of the city. But when you were here, were you basically like wrapped up in work, like starting to write on projects or anything like that? Because I'm assuming you weren't filming anything because of the lockdown. Yeah, but we did actually shoot cam in Los Angeles, too. So I've I've I've, okay. I've, I've shot in L.A. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, well, awesome. I mean, the first question that uh, I've had, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a few directors on here. And it's always fun to kind of talk about their first experiences uh leading up to you know their first features and things like that so the first thing i usually ask is uh when you were growing up like what was the first thing that you connected with uh as a film as a kid like was there did what was like your first favorite movie yeah i i think that i don't really i can't really recall my first favorite movie but i can recall the kind of film that kind of was like, oh, I think I want to be a filmmaker, you know, and that kind of first experience, which was a movie called The City of Lost Children, which I think would be, is like very surprising to people who are probably, you know, who are like familiar with the first two films I've made and especially with Pipeline, because that is like, it's like a cyberpunk surreal, you know, giant world buildy French film, sci-fi 
um, thing. But that's actually the kind of stuff that really scratches the itch for me. Um, and that I'd love to be making, um, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and that was the film that I saw. And that was the first time that I was like, how did this exist? Like who made this? And that was, you know, you, you kind of start IMDb people and IMDb was kind of also, you know, the way that I, and I think an entire generation of people, you know, have educated themselves about cinema and have learned what movies is. Cause that's where you start being like, Oh, what did this director do? What else has this director done? Oh, what's this? What's that? Um, and you kind of, your, your, your idea of what movies can be continues to expand, but city of lost children was kind of the first. And, you know, there was a, there was a video store in my hometown of Boulder called the video station um, that, there was this guy who worked there named Steven, uh, and he, we, we, we got rec movie recommendations from him a lot. And we asked him when we were going to rent, I wanted my parents to rent the city of lost children. It was R and they asked him, you know, like, is it appropriate for the kid? And he was like, yeah, he's going to love it. And then after that, I also started going in and asking Steven for movie recommendations. And he started helping me kind of educate myself too, which is, you know, it's crazy how how much we've like totally forgotten about, you know, not just video rental stores, but also like just like the place they used to have and like our culture and like how important and lovely it is to like have a physical space in a community around an art form. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I feel like people always sort of like wax poetic about record stores in that sort of way. But I think video stores are kind of like the lost thing that people really, really don't ever you know, chair, like think back on, on those memories. And it's awesome that you had that person to sort of like shepherd you through that. Um, yeah. And also I like the idea of, I, I've never really thought about IMDB as sort of like, you know, again, to, to uh, equate it to music, but like how people would, you know, research a record label, research a producer or something like that. Like, Oh, what other things has come out on this label or whatever. And then that's how you find stuff. But IMDB, you're right, is in a lot of ways, the same sort of thing. Um, yeah. I uh, I was curious if was City of Lost Children the first movie you saw by that director because I feel like for a lot of us, uh, Amelie is usually like the the gateway. Yeah, you know, and then you it was start my first Janae, and I saw I saw City of Lost Children, and then I saw and you know it's important to mention that Janae at the time had a co-director Mark Caro. You know, there was a directing they were a directing duo, um, and so I saw City of Lost Children, then I saw Delicatessen, um, then I saw Amelie, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, my parents were for 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 dumb reasons. I think always more. Um, my parents are not prudish at all, but they were always more like touchy about sex scenes in movies and violence. So you know, I think there was like some opening sex stuff in Amelie that they were like, oh, we don't know. Um, but, <laughs> but eventually, you know, eventually they they got over trying to you know keep me from watching shit. For sure. For sure. Um. And then what about uh what what about when it comes to like screenwriting and things like that like did you have any was there any scripts that first like what where like the power of dialogue really caught your attention where you're like oh wow like this is something that's exciting and maybe you know read through a script or something I've never been a big script reader in terms of like reading classic screenplays um there were a few that popped for me there were like more like books on screenwriting that really informed me like um it's a book called like 101 ways not to write a screenplay that is fantastic because it's kind of it avoids some of the pitfalls of like 
these kind of like how to write a screenplay texts that ultimately it, it's it's you're starting from scratch every time you write a movie there's no formula for it but that book 101 ways not to write a screenplay it's really about like the craft of like actually crafting the document of a script which okay. i think is like the thing is is that a screenplay is a technical document it's not a work of art it's an outline it's a suggestion of what a movie can be written in actually a fairly rigid form that is 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 about you know it, it is an industrial document like the idea of the script and the way a script is formatted is entirely so that you can then move into an industrial mode of film production you know what i mean and yeah um you know because it's like a page a minute and all these things and like you know the way it's formatted and then you actually get on set and you know you're calculating your day based on oh you know this is a a three and three eighths page day you know and that's like not really how one would think about kind of artistic writing so what i liked about that book a lot was that it it, it really did help you think through like the intersection between the artistic and the technical when it comes to screenwriting um there's a J. Michael Straczynski book called On Screenwriting that I read that I also really loved um, that had a lot, you know, of other similar kind of combination of like the technical and the artistic. Um, it was really valuable. Um, but there wasn't really a script. I mean, obviously, like any kind of like young white boy living in the suburbs, I was like into David Fincher and Quentin Tarantino and like, you know, initially was you know and the cohen brothers and was kind of trying to Ill imitate that form of screenwriting but it's interesting the cohen brothers scripts themselves are actually quite dry um for films that are as not dry as they are they they're they're extraordinarily precise documents they're not really fun to read like tarantino's scripts are you know they're flowery and he tries right. to write them like thing, like like a novel, or, you know, like something that you would actually want to read. The Alien screenplay is brilliant. Uh, it kind of does an extraordinary job at communicating rhythm and tone. Uh, those were those were initial scripts that I that really sparked for me. Nice, yeah. The Cohen, I mean, you, those are yeah, obviously all great, all great uh, writers and directors. Like the Coens for me are like all time, all time favorites, and it's always funny to hear the stories about how like you know all, all the actors in their films like have to just go directly by the script and it's funny to hear you say how dry they yes. are because obviously that shows like the brilliance of all the character actors they always seem to get that like really amplify yes. what is happening in there mm -hmm. that actually leads me to want to ask you when it comes to your screenplays like are you pretty precise with with uh not at with all what goes on screen okay not at all i don't i don't care at all um really. <laughs> like you know it it as long as it serves the story, like I, I, you know, I could imagine making a movie or writing a script where I did really care about it. But as of yet, it's kind of been one of these things where like, I'm too interested in collaboration. It's twofold. One, when you're making movies at this speed, you don't have the luxury of being precious. Uh, unless you've had like a tremendous amount of prep time. But even mm. then, you you kind of like things go wrong that you simply cannot recover from. 
And if you think about something like Tarantino and like his first film being Reservoir Dogs, like it's a very simple movie. It's essentially a stage play. There's not a lot that's going to go wrong during that production. So you kind of have that ability to like really dial in on, on, you know, this like very singular artistic vision, but I'm way more interested in collaboration. I'm way more interested in like where the movie's going to take me. Um, mm. And, and I think, um, and another way of thinking about this is, you know, the Cohen storyboard, every single shot. And uh, I, I was recently speaking with somebody who worked as an editor for them um, and, you know, as an assistant editor for them on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he was saying that, you know, like the assembly of the movie is 80%, 90% of what the movie will ultimately end up being. And that's crazy. It's like, yeah. You know, you know, it's like the pipeline assembly was two hours and 20 minutes and the finished film was, you know, 104. It's, it's, the movie changes unbelievably. So that's just not yeah. how my brain works. Like, I'm not the kind of filmmaker that goes in like that. I like to like be organic, to be surprised, to be responsive. Um, you know, I find that very fulfilling. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, it's funny you mentioned the Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino. I felt like, um, you know, no spoilers or whatever, but uh, the there's a Logan and Rowan scene in a car that actually that's that's where my brain went. Where I was like, wow, this. Feels oh, we a were directly bad. we were directly quoting. We were directly quoting. Uh, <laughs> okay. We were yeah yeah. I mean, I think I think that there's a moment where uh uh. Just, just like skip thirty seconds forward for listeners uh, right now. Yeah. Literally, Logan goes. I think they fucking shot me. Like it's, it's, uh, uh, it's one. It's part of the fun of the movie is the way in which we are very literally engaging with this like familiarity of the heist genre to tell a story that is like so deeply taboo and to kind of break open a conversation that I think that it's really important to have, but that you can kind of only get people in the theater and talking about it. If it's something that they recognize, we didn't just want to make an art film. We wanted to make a, a heist film. Love that. Love that. Um, well, so what was the, uh, what was the first script you ever wrote? Oh boy. Uh, that was a movie called overture for a murder that I wrote at <laughs> okay. 13 uh for a oh, wow. screenwriting competition um okay and it was like uh it was like it, it was it was quite conceptual for a 13 year old probably but it was i was really into charlie kaufman too um and and meta narratives i thought those were really cool when i was younger um and to some extent still do i mean like there's like absolutely a meta-ness to pipeline there's a meta-ness to faces of death um you know uh, but that was a movie where it was like, I was really into like forties noir films at that age too. Uh, and like gangster movies and, and like private detective movies. Um, and, and basically I, uh, uh, it was like a, it was kind of, the movie was kind of like a Maltese Falcon, big sleep esque noir conspiracy film where all of the characters were kind of like, hard-boiled noir 40s characters but the movie took place in the present day and nobody around them was that way like they were uh -huh. all kind of caught up in their own story um okay but then periodically there would be other people being like what are you doing 
um, uh, really strange uh, movie. Um, but there, you know, I recently my friend, one of my friends, dug it back up and sent it to me. Um, and I was reading through it, and I was like, "There's this is there's something here. This is like surprising." Wow, that's nice. It's nice to be able to revisit that and not just you know feel very cringe about the fact that it's you know your first and you're young and and all of that. I'm interested in you saying it was for a screenwriting competition. What how was was that like an online thing? Was it like in your in your town? Yeah, I don't even remember what it was really. Um, yeah, it was it, it. It was my friend Alex told me about it and then i just like wanted to submit i honestly can't recall yeah 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 no it's fine it's fine but it was, it was something that you yeah. had already written it was something you had already written no no no. i wrote you, it like, like i wrote for... it i wrote it for the screenwriting competition got it yeah. got it oh that's yeah. awesome that's awesome so i mean that obviously shows how early on you were interested in all of this stuff yeah i didn't know how er like at what age uh you were connecting with all of these movies and stuff so that's that's pretty impressive um yeah, what, I saw City uh, of Lost Children at like uh, 11, maybe 10. Like, it was okay. very young for me. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's like, that sounds like it was like your Star Wars. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's usually the age of kids are getting into that level of fantasy. But obviously, you have that same thing. But it's like a a more dense, uh, surrealistic sort of sort of thing. Um, what uh, What was the first time you were on set? The first time I was defined set. Okay. Uh, in an environment <laughs> where there's a camera and people being, uh, you know, like filming for something. <clears throat> I mean, the first thing I ever did was like, I made a little short film with a friend called a shot of coffee. It was okay. about, um, it was about like, a it was like a group of people having coffee together. And then you realize at the end that like one of them is having like a schizophrenic, episode and three of the other characters aren't real um oh okay really dumb yeah. not good but that was like my first time shooting something but i wouldn't really call that a proper set <clears throat> um you know there's kind of like the stuff you make in high school and then the student films you make in college and then you kind of move into real world on many in many ways the first real actual set set that I was on the first time I worked with an assistant director the first time I had a schedule uh the first time there was any meaningful infrastructure behind what I was doing was cam uh like okay. I'd never worked with an AD before cam like that was my first time making anything on an industrial level so you know I did a lot of Got short it. films and stuff but that was that was really the like it's it was a big and and it's you know <clears throat> i went to harvard and um their film program is really great but it teaches you nothing about industrial filmmaking mm. um and i uh <clears throat> damien chazelle is also a grad and a friend i know him just because he used to visit and uh uh before cam he got on the phone with me for like 45 minutes you know and i was like um how do i do this like what do i do uh, like, how did you go? How did you go from, you know, this Harvard dynamic to like a real film set? And he was kind of like, he gave me a lot of really valuable pointers in terms of, you know, just like 
how to even think, you know, how to work with an AD, what the AD is, you know, um, because there's all these aspects, there's all these kind of craftsmanship aspects of directing and kind of leadership aspects and ways where like you're setting the rhythm, you know, half of directing is just deciding when to move on from a shot. Mm. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you just, it's this constant, the resource that you're working with is time, right? So it's like, you can keep shooting until it's perfect but often you don't have the ability to so how good is good enough and like where are you covered like how much are you going to edit the scene you know what i mean like these are these like right. decisions that you're constantly making that makes a lot yeah. of sense that makes a lot of sense um yeah i wanted to ask actually about uh i've i watched two of the shorts that are that are online um the the one the summer and the and uh bad kid and i noticed um, you worked with uh, one of the same actors in both of those. And then I even, you know, thank you, IMDb, noticed that uh, that Paris Peterson is also has like little roles in your two features yes. uh, as well. Um, what's your relationship with him? And like, how did you guys just come up being movie like fanatics together? What's the story there? Yeah, yeah, you're you're doing a deep dive. I love it. And I adore Paris. <laughs> um, and I, I think that we have uh, were. I'd like, I really want to work with him, work with him again. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, Paris, I met, he was the first actor that ever auditioned for a movie that I did. Uh, so I made this short film my junior year of college called The Summer. And like, I held auditions and Paris was the first person who walked in. He was 14. Um, and it was the first audition he'd ever been to. He was just kind of a go-getter um, <clears throat> from Massachusetts. And he from outside of Boston from Melrose and he like took the bus down to Harvard and we met and I thought he was pretty cool. I thought he just had something. And so I cast him in that and he was great. And then I cast him in, uh, and then I wrote my college thesis film for him. And I think his performance in that is really spectacular. I think he did really, really good work. And, um, <clears throat> and yeah, you know, so he's, he's actually, he's working on set on a uh, pace of death. He, he, I was able to, um he he's he's kind of he he's like kind of Issa's producer's assistant uh and, oh, that's awesome. and then is doing and then is doing other kind of um uh, he's also working with Baker and uh uh you know kind of doing a lot of creative support stuff there's a lot of like screens and social media elements in the film that he's helping create and um he uh but but I I, I love Paris and uh, he's definitely a part of the family and I really want to like be able to have there be a meaty role to dig into with him sure we haven't had the opportunity yet um with uh with the summer being that one of the first shorts that you was it was that the first short that you made while you were in college yeah and that's like my first proper proper short i made one other film that isn't on imdb because it never like um screened anywhere i actually don't know why it's not on imdb but i made a short called blink um okay it was like the first short that i made that uh also very conceptual it was about a it was about a kid who's about to kill himself and then he gets a call on his phone telling him not to do it and then the kind of movie like ends up ends up becoming you end up kind of realizing by the end of the film that he's called himself in the future to keep himself from killing himself Um, wow very strange movie yeah that was like the first short film that i made um uh, i was noticing uh, with with the summer there was like 
if you, I, was that was that in the beginning is that was that actually shot with like super eight like some of the some of the opening scenes like between 16 millimeters yeah yeah oh, okay yeah there was 16 millimeter in it yeah okay cool what was was that like a decision you wanted to make early on or did that just kind of come to you as you were in the middle of it um i just wanted to shoot on 16 yeah with the summer i was noticing um and i don't want to just like assume or project but like i got energy of like sort of like a french new wave sort of a thing meets like almost maybe an early wes anderson sort of thing was that kind of influences going into it yeah i mean so it's funny i i i've never been a big short film guy i don't really like watching them uh and i i i would always have trouble like trying to write short films in college trying to figure out like what they should be and with the summer i i become really obsessed with this one short film called death to the tin man which if you mm. haven't seen, it's this filmmaker, Ray Tintori. He was part of like Court 13, like the Ben Zeitlin, uh, um, Beast of the Southern Wild uh, crew. And um, he made this movie, Death to the Tin Man, that's fantastic. It is so fun. Uh, and I think it was his like NYU college thesis. And that was something that I was like, ooh, I really dig this vibe. And then I kind of did my own take on it. Um, and so like... There's definitely a Wes Andersonianness to that film uh -huh. that I was kind of imitating, but I think I was chasing Anderson a little bit less so okay. than I was just trying to like do my version of Death of the Tin Man. Got it. Got it. Uh, what about the first time? Uh, what was the first time like showing one of your films to an audience? To a proper audience in like a movie theater. Well, it's yeah. worth saying that in high school, I started a theater company because I wanted oh, cool. to make work and I wanted to do stuff in front of an audience, but I didn't. And not, a, I, especially at that time in my life, I was not a big camera person. I like, I found cameras very intimidating. I found the whole kind of technology of filmmaking very intimidating. And so I started a theater company. And so like the first time I had exhibiting work in front of a real audience that was my own was I did a production of Death Trap that I uh, directed um, and produced. And then I did, um, and the following year I wrote a play called Art of a Slow Death that I then directed and produced that we showed, we ran for two weekends um, and, uh, that was um so that was kind of my first and then i, I also uh i also i didn't direct but then i acted in a play that this girl i was doing the theater company with directed um so that was like that was um that was my first time doing work and then my first time really showing work that i had like made myself was probably i think screening the summer at our end of year screening series in college um oh i also did this 24 hour Sorry, go ahead. I also did like this 24-hour filmmaking competition um, in high school, uh, and I made a movie for that that then played in front of an audience. When you were doing that stuff in high school, were you like renting cameras? Like, how are you? How are you getting this stuff made? That seems like a, a lot of work for for someone that young. Well, so in high school, when I made my shorts, I was working with this filmmaker named Jeff Orlowski, who. Um, directed this documentary called Chasing Ice that I worked as an editor on. And Jeff was very much kind of like helping me out, mentoring me. He just graduated college. Uh, and so Jeff had like cameras um, and technical oh, nice. know-how. So Jeff helped me make my first short, Blink. And then we did this 24-hour filmmaking thing together. 
Um, but like, you know, Issa was also working, worked on the 24 hour film making thing. Like she, she worked on that with me. She worked on the plays with me or she worked on one of the plays with me. Um, wow. Yeah. It's awesome to yeah. hear like how you, how you like had this crew being assembled at such an early age that you're still, you know, working yeah. with now. And, and that's, uh, that's always admirable to see. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was curious how, how it feels for you to show work like that in front of an audience, especially as your career has gone on. Like, are you someone that can like sit with an audience and feel comfortable or do you have to leave the room or like, how, like what's that experience like for you? I love being at the premiere and watching the premiere. And it's, I think I've learned after that, I don't really want to watch the movie again. I'm probably <laughs> going to try to see pipeline this weekend because like, I need to go see in my own movie at an AMC. Like, I just, I have to, like, you know, there's something about that. I'll see if I can sit through it. I might have to get really high before I go, but I'm going to go. Um, so how many theaters is it currently playing in, just out of curiosity? It's in, like, 150 this weekend. It'll be at its widest in, like, about 500 next weekend. So next weekend oh, is the time to go support independent cinema, please. Yeah, please. yeah, yeah. I'll definitely... I was going to ask at the end of this what time uh, or what I should time the release of this. So then I'll I'll definitely push this for when it opens for the the widest audience so that we could uh, try to get. That's just, you know, another big inspiration I wanted to talk to you. It's like when you see something and you're like, I more people need to see this like as soon as possible. So yeah. um, we'll definitely time this for that. Um yeah, and it's it's awesome. I even noticed uh, that uh, the Chasing Ice documentary that you worked on ended up being Oscar nominated. So that's pretty it was shortlisted. It was it was not nominated, but but close. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, then the uh, the internet lied just a little bit, but it's not like the internet hasn't done that before. Um, but that's yeah, amazing. Just... I mean, that had to have been that had to have felt pretty exciting, especially you know considering uh, the work on it. Yeah, the, I think the most exciting thing was that it went to Sundance, and then I got to go to Sundance and and feel you know very special. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask what your first film festival that you attended, was that that? Yes, that was the first film festival I attended. I think I went straight to Sundance. I don't know if I'd actually ever been to a film fest otherwise. I think I maybe went to like a couple of film festival event-ish things in Boston, but that Sundance with Chasing Ice, that was that was the first one. Got it. Um, talk to me about being a PA on Whiplash because you mentioned Damien Chazelle and your relationship with, uh, yeah, with yeah. him and the advice you got from him. Yeah. How did that uh, come your way? Did you just meet him through him visiting your college? Yes. Um, I, so I, uh, I was a PA only on the short film version of Whiplash, not the feature. Oh, okay. Um, but Dan Garber, who edits, you know, he edited Cam, he edited Pipeline. Um, we, we PA'd on that short together. Um, and I, yeah, Damien came to speak to my college class. We met, we stayed in touch. Um, he needed PAs and we went and PA'd on the movie. You know, it, 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 it was not a particularly notable experience outside of the fact that it happened and being able to say that, like, I met JK Simmons. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, and I noticed uh, after the shorts, before you ended up doing Cam, you did, uh, you were doing some commercial work. And is it true that you won an Emmy for a MapQuest commercial? It is, but it was a regional Emmy. And I think okay. it's important to recognize that there was essentially no competition in the category. And 
but you have to spend like fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars, or whatever to submit, and then you have to spend like an extra three hundred dollars or whatever for every person on the Emmy. So even though we like won an Emmy, it was mostly like MapQuest essentially just like bought an Emmy. <laughs> I appreciate the very honest sort of self-deprecating aspect to this, where you're just like, yeah, well, I mean, I did, but yeah, but not really. That's. Uh... I think it's just important to recognize that like Hollywood <laughs> awards are fake. Yeah. They're fake, and and the fact that like they dictate anything in the business is kind of crazy because like, like I can say that I'm an Emmy winner, but that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't right. mean anything. Um, it's so silly. And like, and this is the same thing with even up to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like winning an Oscar is entirely like about, were you able to like, work the levers of this like small community in Hollywood in such a way that like you could convince this completely arbitrary voting body that you have like made a great film. Um, right. It's, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And that doesn't mean that I don't like the idea of being a part of award season, but right. it's equally as important not to put absolutely any stake in it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for, uh, for your creative mental health and also personal mental health, I'm sure that's, uh, that's, that's a great way to think about things just even going forward in your career. I wouldn't even say it's about mental health. I think it's about like, um, it's about like, it's not ethics, but it's it's about like what you're going to care about in your career. What kind of like, what kind of validation are you chasing? What kind of meaning are you taking? Why are you making the work? What does, a successful piece of work look like to you. Right. I think when people start chasing Oscars, they're, they're chasing making work for this like arbitrary group of 10,000 people who happen to all work in the film industry and who the Academy happens to have said, okay, you get to be in the Academy, but I don't want to make work for 10,000 people. I want to make work for, and I certainly don't want to make work for Hollywood. I want to make work for, for other people. Um, And, and maybe Hollywood will or will not recognize that, but that needs to make no difference to me in the way that I think about what I'm doing. Any sort of industry recognition is only valuable to me insofar as it allows me to continue doing what I'm doing or scale up what I'm doing. Outside of that, there's just noise. Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Let's uh let's hop over to uh to talking about Cam, which is uh yeah, it was like your first feature. And was that your first time? You know, you've mentioned Issa, um, and you know, you're two people that have collaborated on so many things at this point. Um, was that your first time co-writing with somebody? 
Uh, not really. I'd worked with another guy, Lucas Dine, who I still write with. Um, we'd written some stuff together. Um, I've, I've often collaborated with people. It was my first time writing with Issa. Um, mm -hmm. Even though Issa kind of wrote the script, we collaborated on the story and I directed the movie. We kind of co-authored the film. It was, it was ultimately her script, um, but it was very much kind of a collaboration through and through. Yeah. I was curious how, uh, at what point did Blumhouse come into the picture? Were they signed, were they in early on or was that something that once the movie was made, they took it on? Like what was, what was the relationship they, there? They, they made the film. Yeah. They, they financed the film and actually, you know, cause they did whiplash as well. There was definitely a bit of, you know, Cooper Samuelson who, um, is, uh, the president of Blum is a, is a Harvard guy and he, um, he, he, uh, loves Damien, loves Whiplash, I think saw the opportunity to kickstart another young filmmaker. Mm you know, supported us to make cam. Um, but definitely at a much, much smaller budget than Whiplash. <laughs> and then how how did uh Netflix come into the picture for that? Like was the was that a situation that like once the film was done, then you like pitch it to Netflix and they take it on as a distributor? Yeah. So basically um the way it actually works is so, so the way that Cam was actually made is under something called a backstop deal. So, what a backstop deal is is it's how like uh, it's how a lot of movies were made in the direct to DVD era, where basically mm. you would have a DVD distributor that would come and say, "Okay, it's going to cost you one point, you know, in the case of Cam, one point one million dollars to make this film. We'll give you one. We'll guarantee you one point seven five million dollars for the film." Uh, but it's going to go straight to Netflix or straight to DVD. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then if anybody else wants to pick it up, if the movie is you know, going to get a theatrical release, we can't hold it back, but there will be a small kill fee. So it's essentially, you take a bet that either this is a film that you'll be able to distribute, you know, on DVD at the time or on Netflix, and that'll kind of work or worst case scenario you'll get a kill fee so for that that's how a lot of work was made um and especially mm. kind of the height of the indie boom the way things were structured is you would kind of have your like direct dvd backstop and then your foreign sales and that's how you'd cobble together the equity to make the film and then um if somebody came in and bought out the domestic theatrical rights great um so with cam it was like we had a netflix backstop um we finished the film we got rejected from every single film festival, every single major film festival. Um, Sundance, South by Tribeca, TIFF, Cannes, Venice, to, you know, um, Berlin, uh, Telluride. And by that point, Jason Blum was kind of like, okay, we just need to, you know, trigger the Netflix. We showed the movie to, you know, the handful of distributors who might take it. Everybody passed. So we just, you know, we're like, all right, we just need to trigger the Netflix backstop. Uh, so they did, and then we premiered it at the Fantasia Film Festival, an amazing genre film festival, kind of the largest genre film festival in North America, in Montreal, and um, started getting rave reviews. And the thing about the Netflix backstop is it was the kind of thing where the movie would, uh, it just has an output deal, right? So it was not going to be a Netflix original, there was going to be no fanfare, it wouldn't be branded on the website. 
Um, but what ended up happening is when we started getting rave reviews, Netflix, after the fact, upgraded us to being a Netflix original. Um, so we got the branding, but we didn't actually get the sale. So, you know, um, and I, I have spoken openly about this, you know, it's like we made the movie for 1.1, we sold the Netflix for 1.75 um, because of the way, so the movie made money. But because of the way, but, but like also not nearly as much money as people assume from like a Netflix sale, but sure. because of the way all the financials were structured. So I have points on the film, but I maybe got about $5,000 off that sale. Um, the film has sim since been streamed tens of millions of times on the Netflix platform. And I've, I've received $0 in residuals. So even though we kind of made a hit, um, I wasn't really able to benefit from that at all. And neither was anybody else on the movie. And that's really important because I think that it's something that has fallen by the wayside in the streaming era is the fact that the reason that streaming is able to do what it does is because they've found a way to circumvent union regulations and rules on residuals and on actually paying creatives for the work that they do. And that's the reason why the WGA and, and hopefully the Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild will strike later this year. Um, right. Uh, so, so um, you know, what is nice about CAM is that because it was only picked up as a, an eight-year output deal uh, in, you know, 2026, um, we get the movie back. So hopefully there will oh, be maybe. some, you know, secondary market sales there at some point. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I was, yeah. Uh, does physical media excite you at all? Like, would you be excited if that, you know, got like a proper Blu-ray release or something like that? Oh, I'd love that. I would love yeah. that. You know, I don't yeah. own any physical media because I don't have a lease, nor have I ever had a lease. I don't have anywhere to put anything. <laughs> um, sure. But, you know, I think that I love the idea of being able to actually own an object that is the film. Yeah, for sure. Um, what was the, uh, what was the, this is, kind of a fun question what was the first day on set of cam like i i basically you know again it was like my first time working with an id the first scene i shot the first scene we shot with cam was the scene the first scene with alice and her brother and her mom in the makeup salon um okay where you know she's texting and her mom's like who are you texting and um and then and then we shot that scene and we shot i think okay we basically we shot in the makeup salon that was like our first day so we shot that last scene of the movie too where like her mom is like helping her make up her like broken nose that was like that was we also shot that the first day um yeah got it got it um there's a you know there's an overarching theme of like identity theft in that movie and there's something i just was wanted to talk a little bit about that um i've read that isa say that was inspired by like the piracy aspect of being a cam girl herself and i was wondering if the idea of losing yourself through artistic expression like um sort of like that line between performative and reality like as a co-writer i was wondering if you were inspired of any aspects of that yourself um like um the Daniel behind the camera versus sort of like the Daniel on weekends. Yeah, it's actually, you know, I, there is not really a weekend Daniel. Like I definitely am working just about all the time, but in a way that I'm, I'm getting better at balancing for sure. Um, but, but I would actually say it's more like cam for me was more about the dissociative effects of the internet. 
Like I've definitely mm. lost myself and felt my psyche breaking due to the experiences I've had online. Um, and that was more what I was speaking to in cam. And that absolutely makes sense. And I feel like only continues to make more and more sense as the internet becomes more and more uh, toxic for, I think all of us. Um, there's a, this might be wrong. This is like just some internet research. Is that true that there was like a deleted scene that involved sort of like an AI takeover in that film? No, I don't. I think that like, okay. So, so this was a, this was a thing that I think has gotten garbled in the press. Basically okay. we had written a draft of the film in which like, like of the screenplay in which Alice actually like went to the server farm that the um, cam site was on and like tried to like destroy it. But that was dumb um, and bad. <laughs> and never, ne we never, no one ever even read that version of the script. Okay. Um, we, we, uh, the, um, The one scene that was deleted that I regret, it's its probably the biggest regret of my career, is there was a scene that made it much clearer that the cam site had copied Alice. Mm. That, that, that essentially the cam site was trying to automate its cam labor. And we left the scene out of the movie because I think that we were afraid to give too many answers. And that was a big mistake. Um, like, we kind of knew what was happening. But yeah, we just never really we 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 tried to leave it more open to interpretation. I think some people like that, but I think general audiences don't. And I think it's a bit of a failure of the film because I think that it was a, it was a big lesson to me in terms of understanding the way that stakes work in genre films. That I think that Issa and I were under the impression that the dramatic question of Cam was, how does she stop this thing that's copied her? But the dramatic question of Cam was actually, what is the thing that has copied her? Hmm. And even though, it, had we answered that question, probably at the end of the second act, you know, she learns, oh, I've been copied by this Cam site. And that's a thing that she would learn that would then disempower her even further. Then the dramatic question can become, how does she stop it? But I think that the nature of the this kind of horror film, you have to explain what the thing is before you start to think about defeating the thing. Otherwise, the audience gets pissed off at you. They feel like you're cheating. And so I think that there's like a more art house crowd that is connected to the film. But because the film is in so many other ways, not an art house horror film, you end up kind of having this movie that kind of can't fall into either category. It's neither like a real art house piece but it's also not really fulfilling the commercial more mainstream structural beats um and that's a problem but it's funny the way you know you're describing the scene that you guys ended up scrapping from the original uh screenplay versus even what you're talking about right now uh when i was even just reading about that and hearing you talk about it now uh it's interesting it feels like you guys are almost like predicting the future in a way because now there's all this conversation about ai with like you know like painters photographers all of their work getting basically copied uh through all these different programs and stuff like that um i'm just wondering if that has occurred to you at all you know where we're oh, at 100%. now as a society yeah a hundred percent i mean we 
we were like in a place of um we had basically we were halfway through post-production when deepfakes were essentially like first becoming a thing and we hadn't really considered it and this was one of the other lessons that we learned on cam was that i think it's very hard to do a that that when you have a horror film that involves technology people want to believe that there's a rational explanation for everything it's very hard to get an audience to buy a haunted computer because the idea is that there has to be a an explanation for anything that comes out of a computer so to haunt a computer kind of feels dumb by like just inherently now obviously you look at a movie like you know kyoshi kurosawa's pulse and like he's figured out a way to do that but it's very very challenging right. um <clears throat> and i think in cam we had started the film kind of thinking of it as much more of like a um as much more of a uh a surreal psychological supernatural thriller and that was one of the other things is that ultimately it needed to be a sci-fi horror film not a kind of supernatural horror film because that's simply what the audience will accept and again <clears throat> i think that the movie on many many levels works i think in the ways it fails it fails because of its ability or its inability to like actually understand what it's doing as a genre movie and like effectively work inside of those boundaries to accomplish what it wants to accomplish were these feelings that you had once the film was like, you know, quote unquote, turned in? Or was this something that you thought about as the movie started being shown to audiences and people started giving feedback? Like, did that like at what point did this occur to you? Oh, it was definitely like it. It, it was it was it was probably took about a year of processing the audience response to figure out like. What we had done, what we had made, what we could do better, all of that. Are you pretty good at, you know, basically not reading the comments or are you pretty, uh, pretty into No, I read the stuff? comments. I read the comments <laughs> way too much. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Yeah. But I, I love it because I, I make work to get a response from people. You know what I mean? So yeah. like on some level, of course, I'm going to read the comments. For sure. For sure. Uh, I just want to, before we hop into pipeline, I just really quick wanted to, uh, I, I haven't had the chance to to watch it yet, but I'm interested in that uh, 50 States of Fright project that you worked on. Please don't, please don't watch it. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I really love the actors I worked with on that. Yeah, you got um, to work I with Christina Ricci. With Christina Ricci yeah. and, you know, Victoria Justice and uh, Jacob Batalon. Like they were great. Like everybody was really lovely to work with. Um, and, yeah, and by, I, I have nothing but affection for that crew, um, but but it was it was um, you know it was a quibby it was something for quibby uh, it was a it was a pretty toxic um, we had some pretty toxic producers on that set um, mm. uh, it was a very bad experience um, and and, oh, and, and one that. that we had no kind of creative agency in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's fine. I don't, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to begrudge anybody who worked on it. Uh, you sure. know, they all, they all did their best, but I think that we ultimately didn't really have a lot of, um, a lot of agency in the process. And, uh, uh, yeah, there was some, there was some, um, did you also yeah. experience the, 
Quibi falling apart situation like shortly after it was released kind of a thing. I had a, a, a another director on here, uh, Eric Appel, who worked on a, on a, it was also had a thing on Quibi that like as soon as it went up is when the streaming service went down sort of a situation like was your was your uh, experience i don't remember similar? if we were ever actually released on quibi i was like i had no des- i think we were released on quibi i just i had no desire to like be involved <laughs> with anything that was related to that project fair enough fair enough yeah um all right well then yeah let's uh let's let's dive into pipeline um i I mean, I guess we could start with this with, uh, you know, back to the same thing I asked about Cam. What was the first day on set of uh, Pipeline like? Um, The first day on set of Pipeline, it was a hard day, but in retrospect, it was kind of one of our easiest days, um, which is pretty funny. Um, Basically, the first the first scene we shot on the movie was the scene where Dwayne uh chases away the um land surveyor with the shotgun okay yeah so that was the first shot up um which was cool uh that scene was great um and then our sec you know and then we've kind of did everything of Dwayne at the bar and then the sequence where alicia um is driving and like sees the cops uh, that was like, that was our first day. So, you know, that gives like just also a bit of a sense of like, you know, the pace of that shoot was like, you know, the surveyor scene, Dwayne showing up at the bar, you know, multiple scenes at the bar and then Alicia driving from the cops. Like that's all one day. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was most yeah, of this film shot in New Mexico? Yeah. So it was 22 days of principal photography in New Mexico. And then... Um, two days in North Dakota, two days in LA. And then that was it for principal photography. And then uh, we did two days of pickups in LA. Yeah. You know, uh, especially, you know, I saw it as I, as I mentioned, um, I caught it twice now and last night was a lot of fun for me. Now that I know basically what's going to happen in the movie to sort of like try to take in other aspects of it. And there's some, uh, you know, shots in the film that were just so breathtaking and beautiful. Like the, um, the scene when Michael is uh, experimenting, making a bomb for the first time and like the sky, the sky just behind him. Um, it's just like so yeah. beautiful. Uh, how was that like timing those shots? It, like, you know, well, I was going to talk about that scene and then also the scene, <laughs> that scene. And then also the scene when they're all having like the campfire uh, dinner and, you know, like the, the clouds are just so beautifully lit behind them. Um, yeah. How was uh, getting the timing on both of those shots? It's very funny that you ask that. Both of those shots were giant mistakes that just happened. So the no one way. of Michael at the grain silos. So when when he first kind of when we first cut to his flashback, he cuts to this extreme wide shot of this like bridge. It's like almost total whiteout conditions. That's where we were supposed to shoot the scene where he's testing the blasting cap. Was up there with that in the background. But when we got up there the weather was so bad. It was so cold. It was negative 50, uh, you know, 50 below zero with the wind chill. Wow. Um, Jesus. Yeah. It was, it, I didn't feel like it was, it was just not safe. And it would have been completely impossible to shoot the scene. And that fucked our day because we'd like driven all the way up there 
so we i was like okay we're here let's like pop off this establishing shot and then we'll like figure out what to do later um and so we like then we got like stuck and then we left and then everybody needed to eat lunch and we all went to go eat lunch and then um it took two and a half hours to eat lunch because the restaurant was really slow because we're in the middle of nowhere and so we still owed this blasting cap thing and basically i had the idea okay we'll go do it by the grain silos so we went to the silos and by the time we got there the sun was setting and we had another magic hour scene that we were thinking of shooting but like we had to punt it and so um it just like that just kind of lined up and it was the same thing with the campfire scene like that was something where we um you know we just we were running like 45 minutes late that was supposed to be like blue hour magic hour uh and then and then it just got you know it started getting dark and then we started seeing what the sunset was going to be um and we um we kind of set up a light so that we could front light them and um you know and like and like fill the scene um kind of anticipating it but both of those were like shots that like had the day gone as planned wouldn't have happened uh, which is something wow. that I love about filmmaking is when, you know, the world will surprise you if you're willing and able to listen to it. Yeah. God. I mean, especially that campfire scene, like they are so perfectly framed with the clouds behind them. It's like, just like, yeah, it feels like a, like, like a happy accident, if anything, you know, um, that's what it was. What a, yeah. Uh, I had read that your, parents are involved in climate research uh what's their background in that yes well so they they work as software engineers uh writing the you know code for the climate model my mom's done that my whole life she used to work at the national center of atmospheric research Um, both my parents recently moved to norway uh to work for um climate research organization there that i actually don't even really know the name of it's a very recent shift um but but you know my mom's done that my whole life my dad the last 10 years or so um and yeah you know basically they write the code the computer code for these models that are predicting the kind of apocalyptic environmental circumstances that we uh we all have to look forward to (laughs) uh you know i think it's funny to uh i was thinking about this just where you know, I think for a lot of us, um, whether we're musicians or writers or whatever the situation is, I feel like deep down, we're all trying to sort of, you know, get the approval or applause from our parents. Um, do you feel like any part of that role uh, came into it with uh, with deciding to make this film? No, no. Um, my, like, it's... I, I wouldn't say it's always about approval from our parents. I think it's also about like being afraid of dying and wanting to kind of leave a legacy or something behind or leave some sort of imprint on the world. Um, there's a lot of reasons, you know, there's also wanting the approval of your peers. There's wanting to feel like validated as a human. There's needing to express something because it's, you know, killing you to not. I think there's a lot of reasons why people make work. Um, but for me and my parents, I think it's a fewfold. I definitely would say on some level it was about honoring them um, and the work that they've done. But they just, you know, they just raised me with the climate doom, um, you know? Yeah, 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 I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, 
I was wondering when it came to the book versus uh, the screenplay, like how close they actually are. I, you know, I wish I had the time to have to have absorbed the book before uh, before this conversation. But like, are there are the characters the same? Like, how close in relation are the two actually? Yeah. So the book is is a manifesto. There's no characters. There's no story. There's no anything. Oh, interesting. It's just an argument. Okay. Yeah, the, the book is just an argument for property destruction uh, to fight climate change. Um, it's a very rousing text, but it's uh, it's 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 a, it's a work of political theory. Um, oh, and the movie was ba- is basically saying, "All right, let's dramatize this out in the real world and 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 see what we can see." Got it, got it, got it. And um, you know, one of the co-writers on it is one of the act uh, actors in the film, uh, Ariel Bearer. And uh, how like was the idea right out the bat to um, to have her act and as well write and produce in this movie? I mean, for me, it was in the sense that we had met. I'd cast her in the lead of a film that was going to be my second film that died right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I cast her days later the pandemic hit and the movie kind of promptly fell apart um for a number of reasons and but i'd really wanted to work with her um and then you know so we become friendly we had started trading you know um writing stuff and um and then through that we um you know i i we started talking about maybe writing something together jordan came to visit me the three of us started hanging out we'd all been kind of thinking about doing something together potentially and then, um, you know, when the book happened, that was kind of just a flashpoint of like, okay, um, there's something here that the three of us can dig into together. And Ariella was always a bit resistant to acting in the movie. I think that, you know, she wanted to be able to focus on her job as a writer and producer. And, you know, I think, um, but but I felt very strongly that like it would be important and valuable to have that kind of intersection between putting our voice on screen in a way that we could acknowledge. There was also something very interesting, the fact that like a lot of Ariella's place in our collaboration was like very much more the voice of Alicia um, and a voice of, you know, kind of not a voice of doubt, but a voice of reason and a voice of, you know, always kind of questioning everything that we were doing and making sure that we were always considering the other side of the like political argument or the political perspective um, of what we were doing. And basically, you know, I think that, that, um, that allowed her to then, I think, take a very interesting and kind of nuanced approach to the way that she was playing Sochi. Got it. Uh, One of the things I was thinking about was uh, some of the quick choices to build suspense in the movie that, um, you know, uh, feel like almost like uh, the uh, like a carrot on a stick where you're like, oh, my God, is that going to lead to something that's going to, you know, kind of a thing. And I was wondering if um, like, for instance, like um, when one of the actors feels faint before getting in a car or like maybe a wire being too short, were these things that were um, ever on the spot or are these things all in the script leading up to it? Theo feel feeling faint before getting in the car was in the script. Uh, the whole sequence where Michael's arming the bomb and the wire doesn't read. That was, that was just the wire was too short and forest rolled with it. Um, yeah. 
you know and 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 luckily we had two cameras that day so we were also getting like a live reaction from uh we were getting a live reaction from so there's that moment where like Sochi looks at Sean and gives him a dirty look and like that yeah. that was like that was Ariella responding to Forrest's improv. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it was again it was fun um I, and for people listening, you know, if you see the film it's it's absolutely worth going a second time and picking up on all these little things that uh that maybe you didn't catch or you now that you know what happens, you think about in a different context and things like that. Um I have one uh one more question about this film that uh is just straight uh, nerd for me type shit which is uh yeah. so there's a scene when um when uh logan and rowan um meets with the other people and they seem to be outside of some sort of like a house punk show situation mm-hmm. i was curious if if there was ever any shots of like a band playing or anything like that and, oh, like, oh what, what, what's, oh what's god the, what's the more story there <laughs> oh this is this was our white whale that whole day and that whole shoot. We had like all okay. of these BG. We had all these background actors. We had made a song. We had we made a song, and Logan and Rowan were supposed to be playing the show inside, and there was supposed to be a whole scene in the punk club where they were just doing it. And Christine had actually learned this song. And it was going to be this whole thing. And we just like got fucked on the day. And we always knew, we like always knew it was like going to be so tight to get to this like scene inside the punk venue where it would be a party um, just because it was such a challenging day. Um, Because it was like also the day that we shot the interrogation scene. and the scene outside the police station uh, and then the scene where they like are doing the Coke and leaving. Like there were so many, there was just like all this material to get through. And, um, and at a certain point we just like, and we were like so out of money. That was the last, that was the last day of production uh, in New Mexico. Oh, wow. So that okay. was the last day of principal photography um, was that punk venue. Um, and, and at a certain point we just had to cut it for time, but there was, was there that- was a lot that got cut for time in the movie. Damn. Yeah. I was curious about that. Cause you hear a song being played very quietly in the background and I was going to ask who that is. And if that was the song that was written for the film, what's the, that what's was the, the story? song that was written for the, that was the song that was written for the movie. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's our friend Eden and Cameron, our friends Eden and Cameron uh, made a song for the film that Christine was going to uh, sing. Um, okay. So she was yeah. a singer in it. Got it. Got it. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Eden, Eden was the singer. Uh, so Christine oh, didn't okay. actually do the song, but she, she would have sung along to it. Yeah. 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 Um, that's awesome. Yeah. As soon as that scene came on, I was like, I feel like there's a cut here that maybe didn't make the film, but I was just so curious what that was. And, and so I appreciate you answering that. That's fun. Um, and I'm sorry to hear that that ended up, you know, not working out the way you all hoped. It's okay. Um, well, shit, let me hit you with the last question, which is, uh, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? It's funny. It comes in fits and starts. The most honest gut level reaction is like, I, I've only started really feeling like I'm 
a director on this last movie that I'm shooting right now, uh, Faces of Death. It's the first time that I've I've been able to be on set and go through like a really challenging day and end the day being like, I got what I needed. I know what I needed. I know the compromises I made. I'm not worried. I'm not freaking out. Um, you know, I was coming home every day shooting Pipeline being like, I am destroying my career. This movie is going to be a disaster. Um, it was such a hard shoot. And even though it's like I'm doing the thing, I think I felt like a fraud making both that and making Cam. Because um, I just didn't. I was, you know, I was kind of very much fumbling my way through both movies. Um, and you're always fumbling your way through the movie to some extent, but it's like it's understanding the fumbling process that's when you figure out when you're a filmmaker. And then there's moments where you're like on on your first set and you're shooting and you're like, wow, I'm here. But then you're also like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then there's your moment finishing the film for the first time, but then you're recognizing all the things that aren't good about it. And then premiering the movie for the first time and feeling all of the ways that it didn't connect. And and the second film, and it's, it's the same thing. I think you have these moments of grace and these moments of um, arrival, but I think on some level, I don't feel like I've yet made a film that I feel a hundred that I feel like is, is the best I could have done. And I maybe won't feel like I'm actually doing the thing I want to do until I feel like I've delivered on the promise of the material to its fullest extent. Uh, the promise uh -huh. of the ideas to its fullest extent. Do you, I mean, that's, that's a very honest answer. And I, and I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, are you able to celebrate tiny victories for yourself? Like, is that something you're able to enjoy? Yeah. Yeah, I okay. do. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't say it, it's like, I'm particularly good at it. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, if you ask most people in my life, I think they'd say I, 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 it's probably a personality flaw of mine, you know? Um, but yes, well, I, I am able to, I am able to, to, to celebrate. And again, you know, it's like, it's a huge moment the first time you like show up to a set of a movie that you wrote and you start shooting it and you're like, there are. 15 trucks here and it's because i had an idea you know what i mean like that's that's crazy that's a feeling but yeah but it's it's counterbalanced by these other feelings that i think you know make it harder to feel like there's like a particular moment of i'm doing it because you know yeah fair enough well before i let you go here with this uh with this guy i wanted to uh you know you've been talking about how you're currently working on faces of death which is really exciting that's like a a very provocative piece of uh piece of work to be re i don't know if this is considered a reboot or a remake or, or whatever it is i don't know how much you can really talk about it um, it's a it's just, a reviving it's a okay. we, we've taken yeah I, I mean there's there's there, there's a fair amount that's public you know it, it it's about faces of death was the first viral videotape and this is a movie that is about content moderation 
and virality. Mm. Um, it stars Barbie Ferreira, Dacre Montgomery, Josie Toda, and some other really great people who are coming up. Um, Aaron Holiday was announced. Um, a couple of other folks that are going to be really cool yeah. names. Um, we're shooting the movie on 35 millimeter. Awesome. Uh, and uh, we just finished, we just wrapped our first week of production. And I'm very, very excited. And it's, you know, I feel like, as I, as I was saying, you know, that first week there, there was, there was a day, our fourth day of production was a very hard day. But it was like, you know, there was a moment, you know, my DP on this, Isaac Bauman has been um, a lot of movies. He's he shot a ton. He shot season two of Loki. Um, you know, he's he's very experienced, but he's he's a younger guy. He's like you know mid thirties. Um, and there was like this one day on this shoot that we like kind of looked at each other and we were like, there's like a feeling like that we were both working at a level and a speed and a level of confidence that we had been we had never gotten to before. Where okay. we were like, we cannot believe that we did this day this quickly at this level of quality. Um, you know, and I think that that's like, I really feel like I've got something dialed in on this shoot that I'm really excited yeah. about. And just, just you know, what, wait, just wait for me to eat my words and, you know, six months <laughs> it comes out and it's a complete disaster. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not putting that into the world. I mean, just, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that you've now three movies, you know, like considering this one done, but like, you know, three movies in these are like very provocative subjects that shouldn't be provocative. You know, the first two like shouldn't be as provocative as maybe some might say, but like, you know, I, I appreciate you as a filmmaker uh, doing what you're doing because it is an exciting thing. And uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know, like it's just keep up the great work. It's been really, really awesome to watch your career so far. Thank you so much, man. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Daniel for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder that there is a bonus episode available right now where Daniel answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Go to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to get access to that plus a whole lot more. And go see how to blow up a pipeline right now. Do it today. Go buy a ticket. Get yourself out of the house. Have a nice night. All right. Be good. Take care. Bye-bye.